0: Hello, and welcome to the Not-A-Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. As soon as he's back, which we expect to be around late July to early August, we will be resuming the regular weekly-by-weekly weekly podcast with a storm of sores. While Jeff's gone, I'm going to be doing a weekly episodes with a rotating series of guest hosts, as well as some audio and text posts of my own, and I'm very happy to welcome my guest for this week. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the Nauticast. Hi, how's it going? Great. Great. So happy to have you here. I've, been, I've really been enjoying having a, a lot of our uh, uh, Twitter ASWA friends on to talk about topics that interest us a lot while, while Jeff is gone.
1: I think that's so cool what you're doing and the kind of like... Uh,
0: in between seasons, you know, just uh,
1: keeping uh, keeping producing. I think that's been super great. So yeah, happy to help out. Um, my name's Alex, they, them pronouns, and I'm here to talk about two of the internet's favorite subjects, racism and queer coding.
0: Absolutely. And we're going we're gonna to get into this uh, specifically with regards to A Song of Ice and Fire. But first, I wanted to start with a question I've been asking a lot of my guests, and that's uh, how did you first get into A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones?
1: I uh, got into the series 2012. I just graduated college. One of my old roommates gave me a a thumb drive because that was the technology of 2012. Um, I had the two seasons and five books because dance was just out at 2012. Yeah. So I binge watched, um, fell in love really hard. And then when I become a super fan of things, like I go research. So I went to Tumblr. I went to TV Tropes. I was just Googling reviews. And then even though I just graduated and one of my degrees was in English where I studied like uh, film criticism, uh, literary criticism, I did not apply that at all to the 20 hours of content that I just watched. So I was very quickly reminded of uh, just those approaches and what it means to the the series and what I just consumed. And so then I started my rewatches and rereads, and I just found just like this really rich world. And also a really rich fandom of literati, um, writing about it, talking about it, theorizing, and yeah, I just dove in at that point.
0: That's great. I remember the, the excitement of those, those early online days of realizing that, I mean, I always love the feeling of realizing that there's way more to something I love than I had initially thought. It leads me to a dozen more things I have to learn about, which, which is always a great feeling. But that, that rabbit hole excitement, I felt that so strongly with, with this series too.
1: Yeah, like every every time I was on Tumblr, opening up like 10 links just to mm-hmm. other theories, other blogs, going back. Um, and, and yeah, just once once I started going down the reread or the, um, the articles, that's how I found Jeff's work, which eventually led me to you a couple of years later. Uh, and just seeing just like there's, there's just so much richness there that even though the, the two seasons of the show did capture my interests, it was just so interesting to compare that experience with like oh the books and the canon and the, the theories just like somewhat overlapping but you know one circles a lot smaller than the other.
0: Yeah, it's true and I it was I I remember I read the books uh before the show came out but then the show brought me back to the books so that that dynamic was definitely very present in my mind and it was for a lot of people. Especially as as the show went along, and of course the the weight increased, and now we're in this yeah, of course this 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 weird in between position. Uh, where we ha- we have the, the canon semi complete, but yeah, I remember uh, the 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 height of the the Tumblr fandom for A Song of Ice and Fire was definitely something special there. Uh, I can- I came in towards kind of the the late end of that, but I had a, a lot of fun with the 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 people who had had big accounts on there and always posting great essays and uh, just great series and linking to each other and yeah there was that real sense of like a canon building among different people who were talking to each other as you say you were bringing uh to the table once you first started getting into that you were bringing uh stuff you uh, thought about a great deal and learned a lot about a great deal so when you when you talk about bringing you know kind of a a, a critical lens to a song of ice and fire kind of what is what what does that mean to you kind of uh, in, in the broadest perspective
1: Yeah, so in the Bryce perspective, um, my education for what it is, uh, one of my degrees is in English. um, And my focus and what I really enjoyed was African American criticism, queer criticism, feminist criticism, uh, and film and media study. And what that allowed me to do was really articulate and apply a framework to just feelings that I've possessed as a queer black individual uh, who interacts with media at times. Um, but with like a framework and frame of references. So in some of those spaces, I, the most active I was back in those early days, I was modding in TV tropes. I was in a couple of threads there. Um, and that was a lot of just trying to, it been on the mood for sure, because I wasn't always gracious, but like just trying to like get other people to recognize their inherent misogyny or racism through this active popular thing that was just, you know, like a locomotion just taking off. But being like, hey, you know, this plot light is pretty cool, but that's actually Kat's story. And because it's robbed, it's like a little different and it, like it's different meanings, but it's like, ah, oh, she's such a bitch. It's like, is she though? Like what's like, why do you think that? And it, and so yeah, that's that's kind of the framework that I brought and that I've maintained um since i i ended up in the card game fandom for a number of years were you aware there's like a card game
0: i yeah i am i didn't know that there was a much of a fandom around it though that's interesting oh it
1: was like i mean in in the gaming world i mean not big but like it was big enough to have like tournaments and stuff so yeah that's awesome for five six years i was uh going to the uh, headquarters in Minneapolis mm-hmm. for other worlds and Gen Con that was like one of their bigger tournaments as well. So um, totally different vibe than like the kind of the tumbler space of the Song Rights and Fire fandom but another space that I was in for a while and it's always just kind of like bringing that perspective of um, just myself because again I'm a black person, I'm queer, I'm trans, I'm not cisgender and so kind of any space I enter I, I am reminded of those facts but also just like how I interact with other people also inform conversations especially when it's about a series like A Song of Ice and Fire which has I think sometimes over generously been given the label as very diverse very queer friendly very feminist and I could Slightly apply that label to it, but like with a couple of caveats, um, it's better than most, but it's not great overall. In, in my opinion, um, but that's also something that like I've had to contest other people's perspectives where they don't, where they feel it's the opposite of that.
0: It's. I love what you said about the the question being why do you think that, and that that's a question that some people respond to within a very hostile fashion. And of course, it's not an abstract question for as as you say, so often when you enter spaces, your very presence seems to provoke that question and the hostility that goes with it in a lot of people so you those are kind of the terms you have to be wrestling with immediately and yeah the 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 resistance to that question i guess I guess there's a couple overlapping things there. one is just like you're attacking the story itself, which always seems very juvenile to me, because like George R. R. Martin's not here, guys, you know, he doesn't care. <laughs> Then there is, yeah, specific uh, uh, umbrage taken to any analysis along uh, racial or gender lines. And then there's just kind of like anti-criticism mindset in general, I find sometimes just crops up where it's like, why, why are you doing that at all? (laughs) Do you, do you find that that happens? Do you have to just like come to the, what the basics of criticism is sometimes when you're having those conversations?
1: Yeah. And I think each each one of those three questions is just a different uh, approach and mindset, and something that for me consistently happens. The, the last question of like, why are you always a critic of things? Is like, why I appreciate the folks that I can watch things with, but I also know there's like only a there's a smaller group of amongst those of like people that I can like tell my opinions as as they're as they're being formed. Um, especially like, wow, man, I was dating someone who was very much not happy with the way I would like be like. Does that make sense for the timeline? You'd be like, Alex, who cares? Like, well, I care because it makes sense. <laughs> and uh, if to bring uh, a song fire back, we specifically Game of Thrones. Like, when it got to the point where fleets were just teleporting intercontinentally with like no care about like a timeline or distance, I was like, it should matter that they were in King's Landing and then suddenly in Castle Rock in the same episode. Like, that's a thing. Like that that should matter. And the other, uh, the earlier questions about, um, do you hate this work? Do I was like, no, I I played the card game of this. Like, I right. was in a hall full of sweaty nerds, like, playing Catlin's Dark <laughs> Attack Mode, you know? like that That's was me, devotion, you know? folks. Like, that, that, is, that is devotion, <laughs> right? So it's like, this is a <laughs> world that I've enjoyed, an IP that I've enjoyed. Um, I do enjoy it, and a way that I enjoy it is asking questions, uh, applying criticisms, um, thinking a little bit deeper than what I'm seeing. And the middle question, which I think is where the most umbrage and hostility is, is like, why are you bringing into race, gender, feminist issues into it? And my short answer is because we're people too, and we're here on this planet, and it's not just this, Wonderful, ahistoric, contextless vacuum of like Euro whiteness that just, you know, just there, just like, you know, the Ark of the Covenant that we all just have to get on our knees and pray to. And bringing up those facts and then just, again, bringing up the perspective or the representation either in series, so A Song of Ice and Fire, like their relationship to race and gender is very different than Game of Thrones. And then both of those are very different from the fans and the fan perspective. And yeah, having to n- navigate and negotiate those conversations is tiring, which is why I'm largely a lurker in the Song of Ice Fire space because after modding uh, TV Trove's thread for a couple of years, I was just like, I just wanna play my cards, I just wanna do this and just you know, like ease off the break a little bit. Um, but since quarantine has started and also since I I've moved uh, to this, this new place in California, Um, I've kind of gotten back into it a little bit, like in, um, certain discords podcasts like yourself. Um, so just kind of like getting back into that space just to interact with people, um, over something that I do fundamentally enjoy. I do also acknowledge that it's not perfect.
0: Of course. And nothing ever is like, there's no, that's also, that's also that something I see come up in conversations, the idea that, the assumption that there is a, a gold standard that we're holding up a song of ice and fire to, and that it's failing like that doesn't really exist. Like, you know, every every work is an attempt to make sense of the world. And here's what we think of that attempt. And like you say, it's a framework that you put around emotions that you have. And sometimes people act like criticism means pretending you don't have emotions. And I think there are people who kind of do that, like, you know, with their relationships to stories. But I think it's 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 the, you have your gut instinct, and I yeah I had a recent guest guest on Gretchen who was talking about this, you have your gut instinct, and then the next move should be thinking about that impulse. And I've always found that, like, not just intellectually stimulating, but kind of a magical process, that a work of art does something to me that I don't expect. And then I, the person who just had that reaction, have to wonder about it. I think it makes you realize that you and your brain are kind of separate things sometimes, and... Isn't that interesting? And that, so, so like, you know, to kind of break down the mechanisms, because when some people hear critic, they just think person who doesn't like things. And as you say, they just, you know, assume you're here to, to make things bad. So, ha- you know, having, having, as you said, having gone through, uh, having gone through an education of literary criticism and, and finding a special resonance in African American criticism, how would you define these, these terms to people?
1: Yeah, so the infallible source of Wikipedia states (laughs) literary literary criticism is the study, evaluation, and interpretation of literature. Modern literary criticism is often influenced by literary theory, which is the philosophical discussion of literature's goals and methods. What I interpret that to mean is it's the difference between like finding faults and saying that this thing is good or worth watching or reading versus finding meaning and saying that this work is doing or positioning or positing or giving the meaning that it's supposed to or not supposed to so it's it is a very fine line and it does sometimes like overlap but i do think there's a fundamental difference between me being like game of thrones is garbage no one should watch it versus me saying like man this show has horrendous (laughs) representation of like women gender plot space, time, distance, um, meaning, you know, like it overlaps a little bit, but they, but they are different. It's, it's a different argument. Same goal, different argument.
0: That's a, f- a fair distinction, I think. And I think, you know, the former category is a, a, a consumer report. And I say that without even judgment, really. But it's, it's like a, a question of whether you want to, whether this HBO product is worth the hour that it takes for you. And that, and, you know, and then next week will be the next one. And I think, you know, what you're talking about is the the pursuit of meaning. And I think that's, you know, the definition is of something that lasts beyond the watching of the episode. And I think that's, you know, that, that I think is is where criticism comes into play is, is is providing a framework, providing context, like, like you were saying earlier.
1: Yeah. And I think that's specifically where like literary criticism and theory like shines and proves itself as worthwhile because, The first time I watched uh, Game of Thrones, the first two seasons, I just sat and watched. One episode ended, pressed the next one. I enjoyed it, the hype, you know, dire wolves attacking thieves and, you know, the dragons being born, Blackwater, like, spectacle, just uh, very much enjoyable. But then when I started rereading and thinking about, like, what these characters meant, what this tension meant, what these relationships meant, that also made me think about myself, my own relationship, because the first time I watched it, my favorite characters were, I would say, charitably and hopefully not offensively, like the easier to like characters, your Neds, your Johns, your your Tyrians. And then the next time, or when I came back to the series, when I started to look at other opinions and, and look at other criticism, my favorite characters were and still are Sansa, Cat, and Cersei. Just for what they made me remind myself of and like what I think is important for a person, or Cersei's, Cersei's just pleasure. Cersei's fun. Cersei's fun. <laughs> um, but also just a very uh, fun person to talk about in these contexts because her very presence and her role in the story is so polarizing for a lot of like uncharitable kind of like base reactions to some more that are, you know, I think intellectually sound arguments against her, um, but still just like the, the presence of these three characters, these three women, and uh, how they interact with moving from a book series to a TV show to fans, I think that's just such an interesting way to look at our own relationship, with, not, not just with women, but with people. And, and people, youth, women, married folks, unmarried folks. And, and yeah, I just think that's just so fascinating to, to explore.
0: I love how people's re- favorite characters change over time in relationship to this story in particular, because I, I feel like it's happened to everybody. Everybody who spent a lot of time with the story, has it changes like your top three or five or whatever, when you first start watching the show, or you first hear about it, if you invest a lot of time in it, it's always some other character catches your eye, or you read an essay about some other character that really makes you sit up and pay attention to them. And there I think there was that's a time
1: when I was a Stannis was in my top three. There was a time I called him the sad King Arthur. <laughs> like when <laughs> when like all the sides point to you, but nobody likes you. And exactly. Yeah, when everyone's like
0: and that's and isn't that interesting? Because then that becomes like a marker for how you have changed over time. And sometimes that's what stories are good for. Because you know, as we as we live our lives and press ahead and deal with obstacles, it can be difficult to take stock of our own changing identities and personalities. And one of the great things about keeping a story with you over time is that I'll, it gives you a marker for that. It gives you a record of of your your changing viewpoint. And so, okay, so within within the field. Of of literary criticism that broadly established. How would you define? How would you define the, the goals of African American literary criticism?
1: So my googled answer, um, just to have like a you know to sound smart for a second. This school of criticism challenges established. Excuse me. This school of criticism challenges established ideologies, racial boundaries, and racial prejudice. So I would say that African American, and I would just expand that to just race race based criticism or racial criticism is just pointing out the structure or just the, the assumed default that every story is a white hmm. story. And that is certainly something that uh, I think that Song Rice and Fire is really an interesting example of. So when I was doing some research for this and I was going back and looking for things, um, there are very few canonical references to folks' skin color Unless they're like you know from the Summer Isles or one of the, like the designated like brown places, but in, in intercontinental Westeros, very few like words that say this character is white or whatever word you want to say for an Anglophile or, or, or whatnot. And what that is interesting is is that it just kind of fills in the blank, and you could very well have uh, not all the Lannisters because some of them do get described as like you know, porcelain or fair uh, colored skin. But uh, you could imagine, like, the Tyrells just being dark, darker, right? Like, there, there's no, there's very few canon references to these things. But because of the story, because of the um, category of, like, romance fiction and the you know, castles and the knights, that just is such Eurocentric uh, framework that it just carries over, just connotates whiteness. And so African-American or racial criticism is just challenging that, saying, like, why? Like, why does it have to be? So one of the things that I enjoyed about that early kind of heyday of Tumblr was there were so many blogs that would just do like race lifting or race casting of these characters. And sometimes it would just be like in protest to the show, sometimes it was like, you know, completely against the show, just on their own. And so one of the things I enjoyed the most was just reimagining the first men as folks of Inuit descent. And so this is something similar to like Avatar, The Water Tribes, Legend of Korra, where those folks are uh, based on real world, folks of Inuit and other indigenous descent. And I just thought like, that's cool. Like that makes sense. Like that doesn't break the story. It doesn't take away from the story. It's not saying like, you know, we hate um, Sean Bean. It's just saying like, what would the story be? Like, what would it look like if the first men were darker than the South, right? Would that make more tension? Probably, um, but like you know, like what would that what would that bring to the story if you, if you brought that framework? And something that I found very limiting about um, Planetos and, and the number of times I revisited it is like there is there's like just a hint of like ethnic and national differences and cultural differences between like the north and like the Reach, the Stormlands, the Crownlands. But there's really not a lot. Right? Because it's like, sure, the North, like, they're honorable there, or they're tough there. But it's like, are you going to say that Randall Tarley would argue that he's neither tough nor honorable? Certainly his own code, and he's an asshole. But still, like, there, there's not really a lot of, like, uh, like a New Yorker attitude versus a California attitude, right? Like, yeah, it, that's it's true. Like just dipping its toe in that direction, but doesn't really go that much further. And uh, when uh, Tyrion was over at Illyrio, and Illyrio just points out, it's like, all you Westeros are the same. I thought, yeah, that's true. They're all the same. Whether they're from the North, Iron Islands, Westerlands, whatever, like, they all still have this one cultural framework, largely. And for a story that's supposed, well, not supposed to be, but says it has these divisions, these cultural divisions, we don't see a lot of examples of that clashing a lot.
0: I do. I, I think what you said uh, earlier about A Song of Ice and Fire getting maybe more credit than it deserves or talked. I, I just think it's it's interesting that it's talked about in terms that don't necessarily line up with the story itself. And I do think that has that may have something to do with the largely negative reaction to season eight. And maybe part of what was going on is people being confronted with a a very distorted version of a story that wasn't quite what we had made it into. And especially since we haven't had a, a book for a long time. And I think some of that is to do with tone, but also some of that is to, has to do with yeah, the other specific parameters of imagination in George R. R. Martin's world. And it is, I think that what, it, I think that's a great example. The, that example of, of the first men being descended from an Inuit group. I think that because as soon as you said that, I was like, Oh, I can just all the, the interesting historical parallels that come to mind with what the north is now oh suddenly the starks are not just like our 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 granite heroic good guys but they're like you know they're like canada they're like the northernmost edge of the of the colonizing forces and now and oh like uh, a character like corn Halfhand who already kind of has this like you know he's sitting in cross legged in front of a fire against a rock, and now that kind of that kind of vaguely shamanic imagery would take on a whole new context so there's it's just like yeah people react like you're you've come to destroy the story when it's like just you know any 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 slight move in this direction just exponentially opens up your possibilities i mean it's it's imagination is what you're talking about but as you're saying like the the very little difference between some of these characters in terms of their uh their worldview. It's, it's a expanding imagination.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's such an interesting way to, to position that is like expanding your framework, right? Because one of the challenges or one of the counter arguments is, why are you trying to make it political? Why are you trying to ruin it? Why can't you just enjoy it? And that's where, I mean, I'm just going to say that's a bad faith argument. It makes no sense. It's both unsound and invalid and all of those things because <laughs> The series is about a king dies, five new kings pop up. If that's not politics, I don't know what to tell you. And so it's just like that specific framework of when you want to bring in like racial politics or gender politics, that's where like, you know, it's a bridge too far because the mechanisms of like armies moving, you know, coups, betraying people like that's that's apparently apolitical, but saying that like, what if, you know the these group of people are slightly darker just have slightly more melanin in their skin it's like well that's just too political like no no
0: that's that's ridiculous because that doesn't feel awesome enough even though like there's, you know, there's, this is, this is the most like glib thing I could say, but every, every, all peoples around the world tell awesome stories. Like, you know, every tradition has excitement and monsters in it. Like there's, there's no, there's no tradition on earth. You can't mine for fantasy gold. You see it done often in the margins or, for, you know, if you, if you seek out stories and other traditions. So there's, yeah, there's, there's no reason to treat it like, like the fun police has shown up to stop you from having fun like, in, that, like that in series
1: George has kind of like the like SOS is kind of just like the sandbox of like the yeah. ideas and other things right because there's like the true I mean this is all just like mostly supplementary material but you have like the the jade emperor whatever like there's just like other groups right There's just like other groups of like other interesting people just just other stories just over the horizon like they're there but they're just just beyond the scope of you know the war of the five kings and war for dawn.
0: Right, because you, you get the sense that you know George is just aware of those and wants them to be there. I, I get the sense that as George was rating the series, he realized kind of halfway through that the Dornish should be more important than they are, <laughs> and so that's why in Feast and Dance, all of a sudden, oh, remember the Dornish? They're a very big deal now. Mm-hmm. That was that was that was the plan the whole time, which you know, better than nothing. But it's it's just kind of it's kind of clear, I think.
1: Yeah, that's, that's definitely why I say it. Like, again, it's like better than most. It's like, you know, better than average. But when the average right. is zero, anything's better. And particularly about the Dornish, that is like the Dornish to me kind of feels similar to like Storm from the X-Men, right? It's like, you've got one cool person who's just as important yeah. as Scott and Jean, we promise you, she's totally there. She's and right there
0: on the poster. How, how can you say she's not as important? He, yeah. Every poster of Westeros has
1: Dorn clearly there. Like it's, it's totally there. Like I don't know yeah. what I'm talking about. And that's just one of those things where it's like, uh, in series, I do think it would be like just interesting and something like I've talked about other folks, like imagining like if there were other POVs in earlier books, like it doesn't really make sense to get like a random Arianne chapter in a Game of Thrones, but why not? It doesn't make sense. Like something was happening there. Like these people weren't just buffering up until Feast Dance or till over and comes over. And uh, one of the things specifically about the Dornish that was, has been an opinion I've had that really hasn't wavered. If I was going to describe people of color or non-Westerosi, non-Valyrian, non-pale people in this series, there are two and a half uh, categories. You're hypersexual, you're slavers, or you're enslaved slash functionally not present. And the fact that that is still largely uncontested five books in, and I mean, the Fire and Blood, World of Ice and Fire, like other supplementary material does like a little bit more to it, but not a lot, not not a lot and specifically when you're talking about Dorn, like, I I I have to keep reminding myself, like, what's the in-series designation for the brown Dornish people and the blonde Dornish people? And because it just functionally just doesn't matter. And I think that is also a mistake or a weaker part of the writing to say that there's your salty, stony, and sandy Dornish, but, like, not have that mean anything, you know? So when, uh, was it, who's in bed, Nymeria, when Nymeria Sand was in bed with the Fowler twins, and then, you know, you have to, like, comb through the appendices to see, like, what that means. It's like, okay, Nymeria is salty. The Fowler, House Fowler, is historically stony. Don't fact-check me. I'm kind of winging it. But, you know, <laughs> there's there some difference, right? Because uh, the right. Hain is of the Martells, and then the Fowlers were more aligned with, like, the Annals and the First Men, right? So yes. that sounds like there could be some either racial tension, some mixing there or, you know, the the Oberin line of the Martels are very much like, fuck you, we're going to do what we want but even if you are going to do that like, would the characters in series care? Should we care? Or does it matter at all? And so that's kind of what I feel about the limited representation of non- Westerosi, Valerian, pale peoples, like, does it really matter if there's any differences between the Summer Isles folks, the, uh, the Ibn people, you know, like all these people who just dis- get who described as like blackest skin, uh, teak colored skin, like they don't seem to functionally have any difference in series of the characters. So what does that mean for this world?
0: Yeah. It's never, it's never dramatized as it's never teased out of those scenarios. And I, I think it says something that the the Dornish character people respond to most Oberyn is the one who's outside the Dornish context. Like we meet him in King's Landing, where he's unique, and so George can mine drama very effectively out of contrasting Oberyn with everyone else, and so doesn't really have to write. And then you you get to Feast, and you do, I do the the sense that he's trying to catch up. I think is palpable when you read the Dornish chapters in Feast, and I like those chapters a, a lot for the the drama. And the structure of them, and the reveals of the, oh, this is the plan. Oh, actually, this is the plan. Here's the you know, there's some really good stuff in there. Here's the real plan. George is always good at that. But it's it's in such contrast to if you go back to the beginning of book one and how much time he was taking with Winterfell and how at home he felt there. Like you can you can feel it in that first book. Like George is building Winterfell around himself. And then in Feast for Crows in Dorne, he's like, and and the the drum sent a pulse through the street. That sounds like how you describe a place that's not Europe, I guess. Like there is, you can tell, you can tell. Yeah,
1: you know, totally. There's a total contrast. There's a tonal contrast between the chapters in Winterfell, the chapters in Sunspear, and just the introduction of how Stark characters, where it's like you get to know them and their relationship versus the Stan Snakes, where it's like, cool character, cool character, cool character. This is how she kills. This is how she kills. This is how she kills. The bodyguard kills. Everyone's a killer except for Doran. Who's like the intrigue long, you know, mastermind. Yeah. Total difference in um, effect and tone and impact. And yeah, it does definitely feel like Dorne, like Feast Dance is just like, Oh, Hey, here's the rest of the world. And another interesting thing that kind of moves beyond uh, racial uh, criticism to feminist criticism, something that I've argued for a very long time is that like Catelyn Stark's absence is part of the reason for the proliferation of female characters in Feast Dance and like her perspective older woman as a woman who like knows the world without that you need a Cersei you need Ariane, you need Asha you need Brienne you need like other people to be like yes this is the world for women but now we can show you the world for women in like these other places and these other situations and again it's just like the limited number of them kind of makes the presence of them just stand out even more where typically I would kind of just eyeball say that some of these female characters are some of the favorites of the series just because of how unique they are, in just like the literary pantheon, right, like, and so like, there, there are, there are no other Circes or Catlins. there are other archetypes like them, and there are other characters that serve that role, but, you know, Lady Macbeth is no Cersei, and you don't get to get inside Lady Macbeth's head like you do Cersei, and, or Ariane, right, now you're bringing also intersection, uh, intersectionality to this conversation, or you're bringing in both gender and race, and that is one of the things where it does feel like the series does, you know, deserve its laurels, deserve its credits for that. But you put it in the context of the series as a whole, and then that's where I have to like qualify it, where it's like, I love Arianne, love Asha, love Brienne, love what they represent for, for women, the gender role, gender expectations, how you navigate those things. But it's still just like there's 24 main POV chapters and women are nine, right? So that's just, it's just different.
0: When when you're with the POV you can feel how comfortable George is in their skin and it, it just it, it can absorb you. And I, I I love what you said about those other POVs kind of having to replace Because as the more I look back in the series, the more I realize what a what a unique choice Catelyn is as a character, and really what a great job I think George did with her on the whole. And um and just how much a lesser story it would have been if it had just been Rob's POV, as as I think many other authors would have just gone with. And him him trying to fill that gap in feast and dance is, is interesting, but and then you have that, yeah, that kind of intersectional example of Ariane, who is she's she's an interesting character, because I think she does she does have a clear she does have, I think, her own psychological motivation and her own family relationships that are important. And we do spend time in her head, but there is there there is still like that intro scene with her in Eris O'Carts chapter, where it is George just like leaning as hard as he possibly can. On your 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 like you know instinctive hypersexualized image of what this woman might be like, and like I'm, I go back and forth because like he does kind of undercut that later, but part of me still feels it's still part of her character though when we get to wins. So I'm just yeah I don't yeah I'm not sure. It's complicated <sighs> yeah. I guess. It, it is complicated
1: right because like those tropes like George didn't invent these tropes he's just using them, right. right so like the the exotic right like that's often what they describe as the dornish and, um i don't remember if it's like in series but mostly out of series is more like fan interpretation and, and context but yeah just like the exotic hypersexual sensuous like even their foods are more exotic right it's just like it is just so other right it's like uh, it's it's pretty bad yeah like what you said like since we get her first with eris his context and he's such a fucking stooge like he's so vanilla like that that it's almost dramatic irony because like he doesn't get how out of place he is even though he's like somewhat aware of it but it's still it's just like did we need that chapter at all right like could we have not just could the dog an Ariane chapter like what would it be like from her perspective right of her having to think about leaning into these things to seduce this man versus this man being seduced and manipulated right
0: Right, because yeah, like I, I can see the, the the construction, the dramatic irony of showing you Eris's perspective and then undercutting it, but it does seem just like constructed around the absence of some another narrative you could be telling, where the Dornish characters are actually central, and that just the 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 kind of uh, the impetus for that, I guess, kind of seems absent. Uh, so, what do you think about uh, Game of Thrones in this regard? Uh, how, how do how do things uh, work differently when you're talking about that versus talking about the books? oh man so (laughs) i I, like
1: as i just sigh wearily so (laughs) game of thrones right emmy award-winning show right that that is that is a fact this show won emmys it Uh, sure did won emmys for writing how did it write women i would say not well how did it write race also not well um, I, I was in I was in a watch group when uh, it was the Misha episode where Danny uh, I think that's Astapor that she takes over and then she does like the crowd surfing. Right. Yeah. I just remember just like if you just heard the We Are the World music in the background or you know in the arms of an angel, it would not be out of place with this visual. Like, like this not only had to be like written there presumably as a script coordinator there's presumably like other people watching this like how did so many people see this and not just be like do it is this is this the message is is this what we want but i mean like when you're thinking about this series and the adaptation that's where you get into issues like colorism that's where you get into like real world things so like kind of some of the stuff that we've been talking about previously had been mostly academic Right, we're just talking about like theory books, like these aren't real people in these roles, these are just words on a page. But when you move into an an adaptational space and you're doing more like film and media analysis, colorism is something that is definitely at play here. I can give the show props because they did seem at times somewhat willing to play with the concept called like race lifting or race casting, what I mentioned before with the Starks to, or the First Men to the Inuit folks. So characters like uh, Salazar San, um, Zaro, and Doxus. Um, who's the third one? Um, Jane into uh, Talisa. Oh, Talisa. Like, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These are all like like racial shifts in the characters. Interesting. Um, they're all probably tertiary characters at best, <laughs> like if that. Um, so you know they're playing with it, but only so much. Up until you get to the House of the Dragons, uh, the Valerians which has just reopened this conversation about the, the world of Game of Thrones and, and how they adapt these characters on screen. And as I was just doing some research for the episode, uh, just looking into the racial background of the characters, a lot of the actors did hail from a lot of nationalities, which I wasn't even fully aware of. You know, I had Brazilian actors, Japanese actors, um, uh, half Indian actors, um, British Indian actor, British Indian actors and, and other descents. Largely didn't really mean anything on screen because they're still only playing like the the characters from the framework of Planetos, right? So they're, so like associate of various flavors uh, or whatnot. So it's interesting. Um, I I think that if we look at something that just happened recently within the Heights, there's mm. a uh, more pressing kind of conversation about colorism, which I could contrast with uh, the Valerian's casting because that has been topical to this community. Um, But in the Heights, that's a movie set in um, Washington Heights. It's a predominantly uh, Dominican American or first generation Dominican families in a a neighborhood in New York. And that is a largely Afro-Latino community. And in the movie, most of the folks were very fair very white passing and that just got a lot of backlash. So kind of the opposite of Coral is Valerian where it's like a character who wasn't really described like skin tone wise because as I mentioned before, George, he spends time talking about like eye color, hair color, kind of just fills in the the blank with like like actual skin tone. Um, In the Valerian casting for George's context, he did at one point talk about that he thought about making the Valerians dark, like dark skin. Um, but he thought that would be a problematic choice to have, you know, the, the magical people with the magical blood, you know, purple-eyed and white-haired. He felt that was like a little too dark elfy, a little too drowy. Which I, I think that's fine. My question to George, if, or if I was in that writing story, I was like, why not give that to someone else? Just make someone else black, then, right? If you if you clearly have thought about this concept, just move it somewhere else. But back to Game of Thrones and in The Heights. So in these works, what I find challenging is that this is one of those things where it's like this, it's, it's more of the systemic versus the racism because this is a system in place that is making it so that it's harder to see darker skinned people on screen. We did have Salvador San in in the series. We did have uh, or Zohan, Zohan Doxas in the show. Both of like one died and then one just sailed off, I guess. We never really find out what happens to him, but so. right. I, he he made it. He made it to the end. Good for him. He he won the war of the five kings. <laughs> uh, so, but but like just having like again tertiary characters be the darkest characters on screen and reinforcing that by having the majority of people who are people of color be slaves, um, whether they're just enslaved or sex work or enslaved sex workers, it is problematic. And then when you have Danny Daenerys Um, white-haired, white-skinned, crowd-surfing a a sea of newly freed um, people, like, that's kind of weird, dude. Like, it's just, I just watched it, and I was just groaning the entire time because you have, you know, the swelling music. Like, you're just missing, like, a banner that said, Mission Accomplished or Happy (laughs) Juneteenth. Like, we did it. We solved solved slavery and it's slavery's Bay. So, yeah, the adaptational choices are, I do think they're more of the, the system that reinforces these negative tropes and these lack of roles, these lack of representations, which is to say like, yes, there's the content creators like not providing like hard examples to counter it, right? So like, yeah, if George would have said, the first men are dark, right? Like he could have done that, but he didn't. And so then it just leaves the space to reinforce the same people that you always see in these roles, continue to be the same people and get these roles.
0: That, that image of Daenerys, uh, yeah, in Slaver's Bay, it, it makes me think of like this this kind of chain of stories that we, we have to kind of be mindful of in terms of where a lot of this stuff, from my knowledge, where it comes from, because of, so, you know, so many fantasy stories are drawing on. Like classic adventure serials and adventure stories that the authors were told as kids. And a lot of those come from the Victorian era. And what were Victorian adventure stories really about? You know, they were about, they were about colonialism. That's where those stories were being sent back from and were kind of justifications therein. And, you know, this is, this is, you know, the, the science fiction and fantasy are full of kind of the struggle back and forth. War of the Worlds. The, the, the idea of that story is that, you know, here, here's, here's the Martians come to treat you, England, like you treat the countries you colonize. Isn't this isn't this horrible? I think that's that story chain is what allows people to not realize necessarily what they're looking at or even creating in some cases because they're looking at it as this is an image I remember from adventure stories. What do you mean it's racist? This is something I remember from when I was a kid. This is something I remember on the my my grandparents' scratchy TV when it was like, you know, the the John Wayne version of this. What do you, you know, I don't I don't associate this with the Klan or with things I've seen that are obviously viscerally racist to me. So the question becomes, why, you know, why are you complaining about that? And then there's the real impact it has on people in the industry. And then you, you get an example of that within the Heights where it's like this, no, this is having an impact on people's lives and on on roles they could have had. And you can, you can draw a, a complicated web back to how we handle those kind of images and those stories. And it's, that's a lot to hold together. And I think people much more intelligent and experienced with it could do a better job of explaining it, but there's just, there, there's, there can be so much to keep in mind when you, when you try to, to tease that out.
1: No, I think you unpacked that really well. And it, like, it's so overly simplistic and pithy to say like, well, the answer is just racism or misogyny, right? Like those aren't just magic silver bullets to point like, to point and shoot at something. But I think that you're, the way you talked about like, it just reinforces itself is what leads to these decisions. And so if we think about Linda, who was talking about like why she was against the Valerian casting, what she was referencing was her own lived experience, her own imagination, and using that as the gold standard, kind of like so what you said earlier, like she was saying like, well, I've always thought it was going to be this way, so it should be this way. And to go against it is just going against, you know, the, the sacred text or, or the, the rules that are in place. And... Uh, when if we think about like in the heights especially something I said in like real world like the heights is a place we could go to like and it is just saying like this isn't speculative fiction it's a neighborhood these are these are people you could go and see like their skin is far closer to, to skin tone of mine than yours but the movie representation you just end up with this almost double consciousness where if you're aware of these things you are aware that there are a number of people on this planet with dark skin. If you're only looking at like media and you're only looking at these stories, the representation is inverse. And then so to try to bridge that gap, that's where people are like, well, why are you trying to make it a political story? Like, why why can't you just enjoy it? And uh, the, the actress Rita Moreno, when she was talking, where she was defending in the Heights, made some very bad, poor comments that she retracted like less than a day, probably when her publicist woke up, was like, hey, you gotta uh, cut uh, this uh, out. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, like her argument of like, well, it's just a good story. We should just celebrate for what it is, and everyone else can wait. Like Afro Latinos can wait. And like, what a ridiculous concept because it's just wait. It's not wait until wait until you know In the Heights two, you know Harlem Boogaloo or whatever. It's just 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 wait. Just just for what? Like, and so that's one of the things. Uh, I, a lot of um. Uh, Black activists in the 60s were were talking about that, like, just the idea of waiting until, you know, the the right time or the right season for racial justice or, in our conversation, like, racial representation. And, again, there's there's no end date, there's no criteria, there's no timetable, it's just wait. And for people on this planet, the question is, why should I? Like, what am I waiting for when I live right here, right now? And so when I was seeing people, especially folks from the New York area, talking about like how challenging this is for them because they felt conflicted where like, okay, yes, this is a Latinx story. However, it doesn't reflect me specifically as an Afro-Latino person or a Dominican American person in this experience, like the Valerians, the Martells, the Starks, these are all fictional people. But when you see them like, reimagined on the big screen, whether it's the big screen or the, or the small screen, the people who inhabit those roles, they do kind of place a marker for, you know, like, hey, we have we have Sean Bean, that's next start And in 20 years or 10 years or whenever they do, you know, uh, Game of Thrones revisited, the next person is going to be compared to Sean Bean. And so when you start doing that, that's where it starts being that web that reinforces itself. And so these decisions, these casting folks, these folks in production, they're impact, I I, graciously don't think it is just like, you know, we hate dark people, but I think it is kind of like what you're saying, like just the lack of awareness or the lack of forethought about some of these other stories and other contexts at play. And yeah, it's, it's a very difficult thing to navigate. And I'm certainly not going to say like, you know, it's fun or easy to have these conversations, I do think there's a responsibility for those folks in those positions, especially if you're getting like, you know, a big tent full, like, you know, in theaters release to ask questions. Right. And definitely some of the things that were happening in like around season five and six of Game of Thrones was like, who's in the writer, who's in the writer's room? Like, are there women? Are there people of color? Because the things that end up on screen do not seem like, you know, there was like a a contrasting point of view. And especially when it comes to the depiction of women and just like the, Pro- prolific number of rape scene and sexual assault scenes in like the middle part of the series, where of course the show just had, you know, the moniker of like the tits and dragon show and sex position, you know, like coined, but there was certainly kind of a point in like the low of the season where I was just like, is every rep- episode about sexual assault, right? And I mean, that's where you have uh, Sansa's taking Jane's place, the reimagined um sex scene between Jamie and Cersei, the mutiny of Craster's Keep that just led to just awful things. And, and yeah, it's like, when you're talking about like these adaptational choices, I think like you said, like there should be an awareness, right? Because this isn't just like you and me talking here over zoom, right? This is a production. There's people, there's salaries involved. So to not have some sort of like QA, any sort of check, any sort of like whatever just seems, suspicious (laughs) suspicious at best or just like an echo chamber of the lowest basis instinct at worst
0: and uh, you were alluding to that you know it's not always an obvious frothing hatred and that's a game i think a lot of people play where you have to prove frothing racial hatred before you've proved that there's a problem and that you know that uh, you know oftentimes it's just laziness more than anything else like i think that's what a lot of it is in terms like the shock value stuff on game of thrones it's like how do we we need a bump here we need something before the commercial break. Ah, eh, you know what works. <laughs> we know what works, and and because it's and because and I think this is this is what often comes out of interviews with the people making them is of course it's against a terrible backdrop where getting in the heights made even with these changes to the cast even that was still an uphill battle that they had to go through, and that of course you know that you're the. Whenever I, hear peop- whenever I hear people say, well, why can't you just, just turn your brain off and enjoy it? Like, I get that because life sucks because we all do things we don't want to do all the time. So I, I you know, I, I understand that impulse of like, I just want to enjoy a thing. Let me, you know, I, I, I get the instinct, but then it's like, what is it? What is that instinct leading you to do? And what, what, what who are you cutting off and who is not able to have that luxury in a certain situation? Mm-hmm. That no, luxury is
1: such a, an operative word, right? Because that directly uh-huh. uh, corresponds to privilege and comfort. Right, and I think a white cis heterosexual person's privilege and comfort is that they can opt in or out of these conversations.
0: It's abstract. Yeah,
1: yeah, it, it's 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 abstract. It's academic. It's just all theory. Like, of course, you can wait for the next movie because there will be a next movie. Because there's always a next movie for me. But for if I was uh, a Dominican American person in New York, there, there might not be another in the Heights or any movie set in that area, right? So it yep. doesn't matter when you get those markers right or wrong. And it's not that, you know, you can't, or you're, that the critics are saying like, don't enjoy it. Like I watched the movie. I enjoyed it contextually, right? Like I enjoyed it for like specific reasons and things like that. But I also could say like, man, like I, I've only been in New York a handful of times. I, I'm from Texas. I've lived in a lot of, Uh, Mexican-American communities. I spoke Spanish for like three years growing up like just from from the areas I lived in and the the community that like I lived in was totally different from the one that I see that I saw on screen Mm -hmm. and all of my experience with other ethnic folks that come from either Caribbean island nations, Latin island nations, South American nations, there are Oftentimes, people whose skin approaches mine in in richness and mellowness or teakness, as George likes to say, than folks who don't. And to see that be the story of the uh, of this you know big blockbuster budget uh, Latinx uh, movie, I think is just disappointing. I think it was good in certain areas. Um, the music still mostly is good if, if you like that style of music, but I, I think is is it is a criticism to bring up or in the,
0: in the context of like racial criticism to say, like, it just really didn't serve that community. Well. So you, you had mentioned earlier talking about these stories in terms of, of, of queer criticism. How would you, how would you define that, that kind of approach to stories?
1: Yeah. So my, again, Google definition, because like a good college person, I always Google things. Absolutely. Uh, queer literary criticism denotes a range of approaches to textual scholarship, that analyze and contest heteronormative structures and relations of meaning. Um, I would say it's just asking, are they or European, um, or just like it is like talking about the existing structures of what what is what is assumed to be the default. And uh, in queer in queer spaces, I, I think that is more of a fandom conversation or a conversation that happens amongst uh, the fans interacting with the work than the work itself. Because one of the tenets, I think, that comes with queer criticism is both acknowledging just like the assumed heterosexuality, but also the, uh, the tacit or the unexplored, the way that just relationships are generally underdeveloped in works. And there's the quote where it's, you know, happy families are all alike, unhappy families are all, and I think that's just a very simple, kind of like a a step one to talk about this, because I think it's, I I definitely think it's a harder road to take, but I ultimately think it's a better road to take where you show healthy relationships, and like that tension that exists between them, and to not have that, to have all the tension, to have all the dynamic, all the interactions uh, be in these mostly straight coded characters does leave the room and the, and the interpretation of, is this queer? Like, is this a queer tension or or is or can I imagine it this way? Because the characters themselves usually spend more energy, more effort, more time interacting and relating to that person that they're not married to, than they're, they're not boning or whatever. And yeah, so I think that's just really interesting to see. So in A Song of Ice and Fire, the couple that you could argue has the healthiest relationship, Ned and Kat. They have like maybe I think three chapters where they interact directly. And then the majority of their time they're apart. And in Ned's case specifically, he spends most of his on paper tension with a, a live person <laughs> with Robert Baratheon over anyone else. And that's led to a lot of just uh, analysis or, or queer interpretation of their relationship in that context specifically i think it's more a lack of ways to kind of just talk about relationships in general because ned and robert have a complicated relationship my opinion is they don't want to fuck each other my opinion is like they just need to like talk about how they're different people (laughs) like how it's been 10 years and they're different people and neither one of them can accept that fact that to me is the tension of the relationship them hooking up is not going to help that but in the way that uh, George is introducing Robert Baratheon to us in, in a game of Thrones and the fact that of like all of the POVs in a game of Thrones, Ned is the only one who would have anything close to a good opinion about Robert. So of course, you know, the muscle, like a, a mean, fantasy, you know, he was this, this is this, this muscle behemoth, you know, horned and, and hammer and Dick swinging, just glazing, <laughs> blazing, blazing right. glory through that. Right. So like, of the POV, story, again, like he's the only one who would have that opinion because most of them like don't know him because they're kids or just kind of indifferent or Danny, <laughs> like a very hostile opinion of him, right? So like that's kind of a, a specific challenge to, to that, right? Where it's like Ned is the only one who does think fondly of Robert, right? Like he's the only one who thinks something good of him. And uh, again, I, I, I understand why that can be interpreted for like either sexual or romantic interest, I don't think it is. I think you can have both of those things devoid of sex, but I'm certainly not going to say like, you know, you can't ship them because you know, fuck that, like you ship wherever you want to. But I do think that, again, like queer context and queer criticism is usually leaning more towards the fan side than the canon side.
0: I think the first kind of queer criticism I read was by the film critic Robin Wood, who was writing about the Western movie Rio Bravo. And, uh, if you haven't seen that Rio Bravo is a movie where it's not much plot. It's just a lot of hangout among characters. And it's just these, these just very, this very specific and sensitive and pained dynamics among a few men. And it's like, like the opening scene is like the the one character who's really drunk Like, uh, one, one asshole throws a coin in a spittoon to make him pick it up and get a drink that way. That's how humiliated it is. And he reaches for it and another, another male character kicks it away. And it just gives him this look, this intense, like heated look of, I love you too much to let you do that to yourself. But I'm also, I'm also kind of disgusted with you. But I also, I have to be here for you. And it's, it's intense and it's, it's a look you could, easily interpret as romantic and i know i can predict the kind of people who would go they're just you're just you know you're impeding upon that relationship but it's like there's it's su- it's it's such a specific energy and it kind of it makes you think and it makes you wonder and like i remember reading about reading robin Wood talk about that relationship and and i just remember just being fascinated by by just this kind of energy i was sensing that i hadn't sensed before and i i, I always remember that
1: yeah, one of the re- one of the things I, I really liked about that definition was that the way it—it's not just approaching, but it's contesting heteronormative structures. And one of the things that I, I feel queer criticism opens your eyes to is just like how limiting and prohibitive the heteronormative structure is for everyone,
0: mm-hmm. right? Because
1: just like you said, like that tension, that care, that that journey—it can exist. It, it can and does exist outside of sex. You often don't see that in, in media. In media, like any sort of like character tension is, is building towards a will they, won't they. And again, in queer spaces, you are exploring, well, if if that is the only way that I can see this tension is that it does have to lead to like, you know, that denouement or that realization of sex, then yeah, any two characters looking at each other, they're gonna fuck, right? <laughs> they're into each other, they're secretly gay for each other or whatever. And that—that's again—that's why I say it does does lead more to fanon than canon. And I also think a very interesting uh, intersection. It didn't so much happen in uh, uh, Song of Ice and Fire or Game of Thrones, but certainly in other things, especially in that Tumblr era, is that it does lead to like a very tense and hostile relationship between audience and producers. Of, of, you know, being like, give me this ship, or we're not, like, no one, like, as far as I'm aware, I could be wrong, apologies if I'm overlooking anyone, but I don't remember there being, like, any, you know, Ned, well, they're both dead at this point, so I guess, uh, who's alive? Uh, Loris needs a new boyfriend, or I'm not reading the next book, right? Like, there's, Right, right. There's not, there is shipping in A Song of Ice and Fire in Game of Thrones, um, but I, I felt like, in, in my opinion, from what I saw, it wasn't really directed towards uh, either George or D&D and the showrunners. Whereas in other fandoms and other spaces, um, one of the things I wanted to bring up was was the MCU, where it does lead to like the fourth wall has to break and people have to acknowledge it. And so like what you're talking about, like just you see you saw a look between these actors. Theoretically, there wasn't like, you know, a fan convention where someone's gonna go up there and be like, why did you look at it that way? Did, did, did your character's like secretly being with it? It's something that happens now and the ability to have the fourth wall be more permeable, uh, especially in the context of queer criticism, because the In the Heights people, they were called out for like their, you know, the the colorism, the backlash, like again, they, they, they crossed the fourth wall. In queer context, that does sometimes happen with shipping and that has led to sometimes just the erosion of just the work entirely, not just the fandom, but the work. So thinking about like that Tumblr era of like shows that Tumblr liked, um, Super hulak. Oh God, Super Hulak. Um, oh, I remember those evil.
0: days. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> oh, it was it was that it was, was wild. In a way, it was glorious. It was just such chaotic infighting and mudslinging.
0: It was that was so, pure online. That was the most pure online, I think. But, I think but so. it, it
1: didn't just stay online. Well, I don't want to say the problem, but like it didn't just stay online. Like these were the exactly. people who would like go no, to extensions find them walking down the street like it was like if you're there we're talking about it damn it like john and charlotte need to fuck or you're a hack i'm like what are you talking about like you're you're interacting with the text and you're trying to make it real or something so um recently anthony Mackey, who recently uh headed falcon soldier um now captain america in the marvel cinematic universe he did a, a interview with variety and he said and i'll read it in its entirety The idea of two guys being friends and loving each other in 2021 is a problem because of the exploitation of homosexuality. It used to be guys can be friends, we hang out, and it was cool. You would always meet your friends at the bar, you know, you can't do that anymore because something as pure and beautiful as homosexuality has been exploited by the people who are trying to rationalize themselves. So something that's always been very important to me is showing a sensitive masculine figure. There's nothing more masculine than being a superhero and flying around and beating people up. But there's nothing more sensitive than having an emotional conversation and a kindred spirit friendship with someone that you care about and love
0: P- pure and beautiful of course is what everyone has seized on out of that um which is just it's amazing the words people use when they want to lo- when they want to let you know how totally fine they are with being gay totally fine i called you pure and beautiful like a cherub like you like a statue of cupid and on a, a church it's just, how lovely
1: And I'm thinking about the number of times I've been like roaring blackout drunk my Robert Baratheon days just at a Mm bar, you know, just next to a drag queen wig half off. And I'm just like, pure and beautiful. Pure and (laughs) beautiful.tumblr.com. That framework and that understanding I do think is a problem of the heteronormative space because the heteronormative space has left no room for male friendship because males typically can't express themselves. And so in the tension between Robert and Ned, both like looking at each other in the present, but also trying to like look beyond them into the past, like that is a, an emotional connection and a deep tension and longing, but it's not sexual, right? Um, or another uh, instance of uh, Stannis and Davos, Stavos, where a lot of the kind of most emotive Stannis ever is, is in relationship to Davos. I don't think it's because he wants to fuck him. I think he's just, in a, in a very limited way, comfortable with, with Davos, the way he's not comfortable with any other person alive on that planet. And uh, interpreting that as, as sexual, I do think that that's, like, where qu- criticism comes in, where are just like, why can't they, like, I don't want to say, like, why can't they just be friends? But, like, why isn't the analysis of their friendship sufficient? And so for queer criticism, for me, it's like, I'm, I'm a queer person. I'm a pure and beautiful and I do queer things at times. And I also don't do queer things at times. I have uh, friendships with people who I have no sexual attraction to friendships with people. I do have sexual attraction to like the, these spaces are real, but the way that media kind of compresses them and the way that fans want to expand them, like that is, that is a, that is a a tension that does sometimes lead to like conflict that does lead to sometimes people saying just ridiculous things like people can't be friends in 2021. Like people can't go to a bar. Like that's just, that's asinine. Like no one is saying that no one is saying that like, like the characters of Stan and Bucky can't just hang out. What they are saying is in this work and, and largely this is my interpretation in this work, it seems that the only people, characters really, male characters really like, are their other male characters. And that lack of adequate female characters, that lack of adequate like uh, exploring healthy dynamics, the you know unhappy real, unhappy families are all unique, or whatever. Like that side of things, I do think leads to like so much like queer baiting, queer coding, and just queer tension all without actual queer characters like that's the fucking fucked up <laughs> party, right right like, there's 50 billion mcu products and like what i i don't even know i don't think there. i, I know there's one background character in game that was you know gay because he mentioned his partner got snapped but you know that's that's a background character right there's no main headline character that's canonically queer to like my just first kind of uh scan so and then also in a song of ice and fire where they're Something that y'all brought up in the main cast, which I think is very, very accurate, is that the present day understanding has largely outpaced when George started writing the book. And so, yeah, I could read and I did read Loris and, well, I mean, I saw the show first, so I (laughs) knew there was something up with that shaving scene. Um, Uh So, Rinley and Loris was also spoiled for me. But then when I went back and I got to, you know, pray with me, Loris, it's been a while. And then, you know, a few books later, you know, when the sun has set, no kennel can replace it. Very good, beautiful, or porny things, if it was Renly's, Um, but there's not an on-screen queer person. When I was looking into A Song of Ice and Fire, I feel there's actually more queerness in Fire and Blood (laughs) and The World of Ice and Fire than The series proper, which is a weird tension. I think kind of like what you're saying about the Dornish, George is kind of trying to catch up to some of these things. And so it's like, oh, yeah, the Valerian dude, he's gay. That one Frey lady's gay. That one Targaryen. Like, yeah, there's there's other gay people here. Like, they're, they're all here. They're all here. Um, but in the series proper, there's such limited views of just other sexualities. And uh, the times where we do see, like, uh, female sex, right? So Cersei and Tyna and Danny and Eri, I believe. Like, mm-hmm. those are so contextual <laughs> and so, like, yeah. specific that it's not really queer representation it's kind of in the, like it, if it had to be somewhere sure put it there but like Cersei is a character that like I would say is bisexual aromantic okay versus a sure. fully bisexual fully uh, biromantic person I, I I definitely felt that she was attracted to to Taina and a lot of other queer folks like they've read those chapters with like the same lens of like yeah that's what i felt when i first started having these these attractions i guess but like i don't think cersei wants to like end up with her <laughs> like i don't think cersei wants to end up with anybody like not even jamie at this point like she's well where she is at the end of uh d- a dance is totally different than like you know the majority of her life but the fact that like her life and her sexuality are kind of ignored and underexplored versus the, the non-sexual relationship between Ned and Robert and Stannis and Dallas, which is so mined for like any sort of evidence. It's just, it's just such a weird tension.
0: It's something that struck me also beyond the pure and beautiful about the, uh, the Anthony Mackie quote that, that gets at what you're saying, is, is that he's exploited by people who are trying to rationalize themselves, as if that's not what he's doing in this interview. He's trying to rationalize himself. And explain why he likes this kind of figure. That's what everyone does, and that's that's just that's, that's a, such such a silly moment that you know he can't see that he's taking part in the construction of identity by explaining what he finds to be masculine and then what he finds to be sensitive.
1: Because that, everyone yeah. knows you can't be a woman and fly around and beat people up. Like that's just just incompatible. As as soon as you are, you know, not a male. You're not flying around. You're not beating up people. Wonder Woman, be damned. Power Girl, be damned. Storm, be damned. Like no, you're not. You're not real. figure figures.
0: Right. Exactly. So that's that's him trying to rationalize himself, but he, because that's 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 he doesn't see it that way because that's the soup he swims in with regard to that particular issue. So it doesn't feel like a construction. It just feels like the yeah, like the sacred text, like you were saying, the the default. You you laid out that dynamic so clearly where we have a kind of uh, pop culture and advertising machine that associates all interpersonal tension with sex. And then we act all confused when people interpret interpersonal tension between same-sex characters as gay sexual tension. Like, yeah, like we trained generations to think this way. When when you were talking about it, like, you know, trying to break through the fourth wall and make these characters get it felt like we're being, we're being starved of something and we don't know quite what it is. And maybe that's what criticism is good for—is what is it? What is it really we're hungry for? And maybe it's not what we think, and that's very difficult.
1: No, I think that's—I think that is a really good articulation of that in like like literary criticism, literary theory. You know, these are—I don't want to say like inaccessible, but like very niche understandings. Something that I that I do see like that's more accessible are things like the Bechtel test and the Kent test. Where Uh I I feel like this is just like, hey, this is a really good, easy to understand framework. And there's not one as far as I'm aware for like relationships, but like just like that sort of thing where it's like the Bechtel test is to, you know, the presence of women uh, to be like, does this work pass that test? And I I feel like that's kind of getting to like the, what are we missing? We want something that like hits these markers. We want a work that has these relationships that are fully realized, tense, you know, dynamic, Maybe sometimes sexual, maybe sometimes not sexual, same-sex couples, uh, different-sex couples, um, trans, queer-coded, other folks, you know, we're always just problematizing people by just being there. Um, But yeah, it does really show the limitations of the heteronormative structure. The, the way that the heteronormative structure just puts these limits on people. Like, yeah, Anthony Maggie just tripped all over it. Like, he, dude, was lost. Lost of the soup, lost of the sauce there. Mm-hmm. But I can remember when the first time that I, I saw this description of, of the Blackfish, as, as or, yeah, the Blackfish, uh, Brennan uh, Tully, as Catlin's surrogate mom. And I was like, no, nah, he's just her uncle. Like, a you know, good, good uncle. Friend. Like, you know, probably one of the best parental figures in the series, but like, not her mom, but like the way that, it's only able to be understood that a parental figure who's caring and understanding and listening is maternal. I'm just like, that's just like, it seems like these, these gender roles are fucking y'all up real bad because like, that's just, it's just such, again, like it's, it's like you have gloves on. You can't really interact with the thing because your framework is just so limited. It's one of those things where it's like, there's just such a deficit in the whole that anything looks better. Like, Rinley and Loris having, like, a couple of scenes is is certainly, like, good queer representation. I think the best one of them was the deleted scene where Loris was like, no, I actually did really like him. And Marge is like, that's cool, but we gotta go, bro. Like,
0: priorities,
1: yep. <laughs> like, you know, like, that was like that tender moment in affection that didn't make it that than the uncut version of, uh, of uh, the show. And so, yeah, it's like any scrap in that, complete desolate background where you're having to really look at these characters and be like, oh, she's looking that way or he's looking that way or, you know, stuff like that where it is trying to make so much out of so little. And the other shit that I want to talk about, uh, one of my favorites, Jatin, where it's, again, like there's, there was a choice, right? There was a character in the book. His name's Sat, Best character in the whole fucking series. Fight me on it. He was adapted out of Game of Thrones and in his place, they put in Ollie, as far as, Remember I'm of, Orleans, as far as I'm aware, as far as I'm aware, No one's favorite character. It's definitely kind of like the uh, oh my gosh, what was it? The the cousin from like uh, the Brady Bunch that just showed up everywhere like the strategy, <laughs> do basically. Ollie's Pretty the Scratto of, of uh, Game of Thrones, but like to adapt out this character who is very queer coded, right? Sensitive, um, always described as beautiful. So kind of like in the Rob and. The Rob v uh, Robert, sorry, the Ned v Robert way that John is always talking about, like how pretty satin is, how you know how special, how good he smells. John, what's going on here? Whatever. But that character being adapted out for for this Ollie character, who was very masculine-coded, right? Like this very like angry, belligerent uh, character. Like that was a choice that several people had to make. And again, it's like you're taking out one of the scraps, like satin has not said canonically any way that he's oriented or interested, like this is all mostly just John's, which means the audience's projection of him and, and his interests, but like that person was adapted out and they put in his place a pretty inarguable straight coded character or someone they intended to not have the, the Jatin relationship. Is it because D&D are hacks and they knew they couldn't do justice to the greatest ship in a Song of Ice and Fire Jatin? Some might say Yes. I think so. (laughs) But even if there isn't some anti jattin conspiracy because they're out there, they did adapt out this canonically, you know, sensitive uh, feminine coded character and they put Ollie in his place. Like, that is a choice that people made. And obviously, you know, Satin's still alive in this book. He's going to make it to Endgame. I don't know how. He just is. But do I think that he and John are going to be boyfriends at the end? No. I largely think John's gonna go off into the north like the the show uh, like the show showed and satin's is gonna be there. Maybe he handles him he hands him his, you know, horse strap thingy or something. I don't know. That I think that's the only canon in game for Jatin. But I think the queer coding and the sort of relational tension between John towards Satin, kinda like Cersei and Tina, where it's like, you're just so interested about this one person and you don't seem to have that same interest to anyone else in that mm-hmm. particular way. Like, that does seem to point to something. Is George going to have, you know, a, oh my God, a sad swap scene? Like, I doubt it. God, I hope not actually. Like, <laughs> like, like no, we don't need that. But, you know, like, this, this is, these are the scraps of queer representation we have in this text, you know, this behemoth of a text. This is kind of some of the better question mark representation you get about these things. And, uh, George could just 100% say in his next uh, not a blog post like no they're both straight and that's canon right like that is that is the word from George but it's not going to change the feelings about it it's it's probably going to make people pissed if he does say that but again like this this queer criticism and in a a different way than like darker skinned um, Latinx folks or black people exist in this world the presence of queer people in text is just an inherent tension because of these assumptive defaults and the limitations of representation where it comes to what makes it to the page, what makes it to the show, what makes it to the movie, what gets added into, you know, like that one paragraph in the compendium book that like Uh only the in crowd is already reading. Like these are things that that matter when it comes to these representations and these criticisms.
0: That's something I feel with George sometimes is you know, I don't think he's particularly good at writing uh, sex scenes or romantic relationships on the whole. There's a couple exceptions. I think most people agree. And I think most people aren't good at that. I think it's difficult to write romantic and sexual relationships well, um, you know, in a explicitly erotic context or otherwise. And I think... So then you have that and then you have the, the framework on top of it where is, oh, but we have all these easily accepted conventional shorthands for heterosexual sex and romance. So we don't really, even if we're not comfortable with it, even if we're not good at it, we can just trot those out and we can just have, here's, here's your curvy sex worker, here are your conventionally handsome breeding pair. And even if there's no, what you might call substance there, it, you know, your brain will do the, a lot of, most brains will just do the rest of the work for you at that point. And Cat so Ned
1: are post-sex, right? They're right. post-sex,
0: but we Deliberate interpret decisions.
1: so much about their sex life, right? And something that GGC brought up is like um, Ned has a thing for hair because it, it comes up in, in the book a couple times, right? But it's like, yeah, like your your brain is doing a lot of the heavy lifting, and I could I I, I want none of this to be understood as like I think George is like racist or homophobic. I, I certainly right. do more agree with you in the sense that like I think these are largely areas that he is an experience with or uncomfortable with or just has no interest in it which is okay like that's fine like no one's saying like you have to have you know gay sex happen on screen or this book is a flop like some people will probably say that because shippers will say anything but But i think reasonable people would say like that's not a thing um i i do think that that's kind of like what you've been bringing up in this conversation today i feel like so much of like the padding out of the story is kind of buttressing these other things for like their lack of inclusion in the earlier books.
0: And the the fact that George feels the need to do that, I think is telling. Cause I don't think, I don't think he's responding purely mercenary to market interest. Cause his books were already bestsellers. I think he's, I think he feels the lack, or I think he feels that like, man, I'm telling a story that presents itself as having this just wide range of experiences and just blow in your mind. And this is an area where I'm not blowing minds and, and that kind of feels bad. And I think, and I think that's a that's a great motivation to have. And I think, yeah, I think, I think so much of it comes down to there being the room for then other people to tell their stories more effectively and openly, and uh, and with, and with pride, because there are you know there are g- writers who write sex scenes way better than George R. R. Martin out there, and so it, it would be way better for them to get their book, I think, than to than for George to try to be a kind of writer he's not. I guess is I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like I would love to see I would I would love to I would love to see someone write better queer sex scenes than George R. R. Martin ever could. I would love I would I would rather read those than George R. R. Martin's queer sex scene, I guess. I
1: mean uh, if you just go to Tumblr, you could go to Exactly
0: <laughs> And that's why we have fanfic folks. That's I mean, why we have yeah, that, that space I, to play. I, I definitely
1: think that's that's something where fanfic does really prove and shine itself as mm-hmm. you know, a place of merit. Um, for you know like there's the concept of fix fix right where it's like hey the, the story's lacking in this area I'm going to create a story that's going to fix it um, and something else about George and him responding to this in earlier uh, in earlier years, but like it was a known thing that George was a, a, a frequenter of like the convention circuit. He even went to some of the card game tournaments and stuff in the in the earliest days. This was before my time playing the card games, but he would show up. He's like, "Whoa, people, like there's a card after this." Like they talk with the fans and stuff. So I'm aware of like secondhand accounts of um, fans of color, queer fans, talking to him about the the book and the story. I know there's like this really. Uh, kind of like in like in fandom uh, exam- famous example of he was at a book signing and this woman came up and he just stopped and was just like, you are the spitting image of Namiria Sand in my head. I do think that George as an author and a person who does seem genuinely interested in connecting with people through story, I, I do feel like he is very aware of the other side of the fourth wall. And so I do yeah. think the inclusions of all the queer characters in Fire and Blood is not just mistake, but it's also being like, I, I know there are more fans out there, or not not just like more fans, more perspectives out there mm-hmm. that my original story, because the Game of Thrones is like what nine POV, something like that? Like it's, it's very tight structured that just expands ever outward. And so yeah, I do think that it is kind of acknowledging, like, yeah, it is kind of lacking in this story as is. So hey. Here's here's your you know here's some other some other things.
0: Well, uh, I think that's going to about wrap us up. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Alex. I really appreciate it. I was I was looking forward to this. I know we talked a while back about doing an episode. I'm so glad we we got together to do it.
1: Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, you like you specifically are a person that I interacted with so early in my exposure to like the the literati literati. I can't say that word today. Space of of this fandom, and then so. Um, seeing you at the beginning and then coming back uh, to to getting to podcasts and stuff—it's just been such a, a good constant through line of like my time in this space so thank you and jeff for the for the podcast um uh in the intro i am queer alex Beyonce's favorite stan uh bastard of chromatica rainbow commander of the VDS and gentle Dems. i'm still formulating my third question because i want to update my title again i just want to do it once per book um but yeah it's just so cool to be to you know be here in, in jeff's uh guest spot for for today
0: oh, well thank you so much for saying so that uh that filled my heart up to here thank you so um Tell the tell the folks listening where they can find your stuff. Blackout drunk at your local gay bar. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> there we go. Um,
1: I'm I'm on Twitter, Parallax, Um 0889. I still need to make a personal Slack, so I can join the Nada Slack. Um, but yeah, I I'm mostly on Twitter, uh, talking about ranting, ranting into the void as one does on Twitter about some of these things. Yes, indeed. Um, but yeah, I'm again mostly a lurker. Um, I super enjoyed uh, being a guest podcast. I hope look to do that a little bit more here in the future.
0: But uh, yeah, that, that, that's me. Heck yeah. Well, we'll have to have you back once once we get Jeff back on the chair. We'll have to have you back on the regular cast for something, something in storm. That would be so great. Thanks so much for listening. As always, folks, you can uh, rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash not a cast, ASOIAF, where you can get access to our weekly episodes early, as well as bonus episodes, including the stuff I'm doing about Lord of the Rings while Jeff is gone. Hit us up on Twitter at Nauticast ASOIAF, or shoot us an email at Nauticast ASOIAF at gmail.com. We'll I'll see you again next week.